Hello there, I'm Brock, and thanks for giving my new podcast, Haida Kolob and Beyond, a fighting chance. I intend to make it worth your while. In this podcast, I plan to talk about things, sometimes stories, history, or even game theory. First, within the scope of the gospel, the part where we hide to Kolob, and then examine the same concepts in the wild, or outside the gospel, the part where we go beyond. Picking up what I'm putting down? Then buckle up, because I'm excited! As I mentioned in my previous episode, I've been particularly excited about discussing the contents of this episode, titled The Price of Wisdom, with you for longer than this podcast has been running. Granted, that's not saying much, since I've only been around for a week or two. Anyway, let's sink our teeth into this forbidden fruit. Maybe we'll even learn a bit more about knowledge of good and evil. Within the doctrine of Kolob, the story of the Garden of Eden is one of the three sacred gardens of the plan of salvation. As Bruce R. McConkie says, 1. The Garden of Eden is where physical and spiritual death were introduced, along with agency, the ability to act. 2. The Garden of Gethsemane is where spiritual death was overcome, according to the agency of those who choose to. 3. The Garden of the Tomb is where physical death was conquered for all. According to Bruce, without the literal Garden of Eden, nor the literal fall, there could be no literal atonement or resurrection. But, given that God is all-powerful, couldn't God have just created the world with physical and spiritual death and given us the agency to accept Christ's atonement? As we see in the last episode, titled In the Beginning, Genesis chapter 1 seems to suggest the world was created that way. Now that we've talked about what Bruce R. McConkie believed, let's see what the Book of Mormon thinks. In 2 Nephi chapter 2, Lehi seems to suggest the same concepts as Bruce. 1. Due to the fall, mankind can discern good from evil. And that's in verse 5. 2. Opposition and temptation are necessary in all things. Without those, life would be indistinguishable from death. Verses 11 to 12 and 15 to 16. 3. There are things that act and things that are acted upon. Verse 14. Which of the two are we? 4. Due to the atonement, we are free to choose either good or evil. Verses 26 to 27. Once again, we see a similar story to that of Bruce R. McConkie albeit with a few different ideas highlighted, such as opposition and temptation. It seems that the only way for Kolob to make sense of the fall is through the lens of atonement. I could go on to talk about the lessons in Preach My Gospel or the Sunday School Manuals, but it would be a vain repetition of the same claim. The fall was necessary and indispensable for our necessary atonement. That's it. According to Kolob, our challenging, miserable lives are only worthwhile through atonement and its resulting exaltation. Now that we've talked a bit as we hide our way to Kolob, 
Open your mind and spirit, buckle down, and keep your hands and feet inside the vehicle at all times, because we're about to go beyond plus ultra style. Welcome to your second sensational trip beyond Kolob. I promise, there is life after Kolob, and it's given me new insight, meaning, and tools in my life, as I've stretched my boundaries further than I was comfortable. That is, after all, the premise of this episode, as we'll see. Let's stretch ourselves a little bit together, shall we? First, let's return to Second Nephi 2 to delve a little deeper into the story of Adam and Eve. As we've already said, Due to the fall, we can now discern good from evil, verse 5, and we experience temptation, verses 11 to 12 and 15 to 16. We also see mention, verse 15, that between the forbidden fruit and the fruit of the tree of life, one is sweet and the other bitter. In the temple, Eve seems to think that the forbidden fruit is sweet. Does that imply that the fruit of the tree of life is bitter? That does seem to conflict with Lehi's vision of the tree of life in 1 Nephi chapter 8, right? Why would the fruit of the tree of life be bitter? Could it be because in order to resurrect, we must first die? Is death bitter? Could it be because repentance, the death of rebellion, is required to partake? Maybe the fruit's bitterness is due to the soul-shaping repentance required to taste the joy of forgiveness. Beyond simply the flavor of the forbidden fruit, however, let's look at what God told Adam and Eve about it. God, one, commands Adam and Eve, as implied, not to partake of the fruit, which obviously implies that God doesn't want them to partake of it. This seems a bit dishonest, given that we know from modern prophets and the scriptures that God's plan of salvation depended on its consumption. 2. God says that in the day thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Genesis 2.17 But we know that Adam and Eve survived long enough to be parents. That takes longer than a day. That also seems dishonest, given that even if God meant that a day is a thousand years, he, knowing all, would have known that the whole world, and probably Adam and Eve, would have misunderstood him. If one knows that their presentation of the facts would lead a trusting listener astray, even misleading honesty is considered dishonest. I feel like I've heard from leaders that a partial truth is also a partial lie. Isn't that what it's starting to look like from God? Speaking of partial truths, God denies Adam and Eve knowledge of the following very relevant truths. 1. Adam and Eve would know good from evil and obtain agency. 2. They would be able to raise children and have a family. And 3. After death, they would be resurrected. In effect, death would be null and void. Here, the facts God omitted seem to be lies of omission rather than of commission. It does not change the dishonest nature of the denial, however. Any of the above three points could be excused on their own, but a symphony of misleading information and strategies of deceit 
indicate the same conclusion. God's commandment and communication style seem very dishonest to me. On the other hand, the serpent says the following concerning the forbidden fruit. 1. Ye shall not surely die. Genesis 3.4 To be fair, this statement also seems deceptive, but if we're going to use the same misunderstanding card on God and his statement of a day is a thousand years, we could even more easily play the misunderstanding card on the serpent. Yes, they would die, but it would have no lasting impact on their eternal progression or their families, given the resurrection. Therefore, if God wasn't dishonest concerning the death threat given to Adam and Eve, the serpent couldn't have been dishonest given what he said about their deaths. 2. In addition to the above statement, the serpent included information God had knowingly omitted when the serpent said, God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Genesis 3.5 As stated before, this was a truth omitted by God. My entire life, I've heard authority figures tell me that the devil will disguise a lie among nine truths, which is fine, but I feel a deep confusion upon the realization that in this situation, it seems like the father of all lies, or the devil, according to current Christians, is more trustworthy than our Father in Heaven, who supposedly is a God of truth and canst not lie, as stated in Ether 3.12. It's okay to have faith in a God that doesn't always tell us the truth, let alone the whole truth, and may lead us down false paths, but I believe that this knowledge will give us a new and improved lens as we examine the nature of God, our relationship with Him, and the faith we may or may not place in him. As we consider an all-powerful entity that is neither completely honest nor open, I believe we would be right in asking ourselves some searching questions like the following. How will we know when God tells us the truth and when we are being led down false paths? How will we know when to stop seeking more truth? Which truths will distance us from deity? How can we recognize those? How can we protect ourselves from them? Which truths must God's one true church hide from us that we might be protected? I believe that the challenges presented with this story can be better understood than simply through the lens of a deceitful God. However, we must place some building blocks before returning to this question. The first one is that we have to drop our literalistic lens and look at Adam and Eve through the lens of mythology. There is evidence within the account that the story of Adam and Eve is not historic. For example, the name Adam isn't really even a name, it's a Hebrew pun for the word Adama, meaning dust, because he was formed from the dust, get it? <laughs> now that you've heard Hebrew puns, you'll be much more grateful for mine, won't you? Even within our trip to Kolob, within the temple ceremony, Adam and Eve are interpreted as avatars or symbols of a man and woman respectively, rather than simply a literal individual, because when we go through the temple, we enact, we act out 
the roles of Adam and Eve as we participate in the temple ceremony. That means that they're not just a human, rather they're symbols or avatars of the person we might become. What if then, like the creation or organization, Adam and Eve are simply symbols of man and woman, and maybe not even literal figures? As I've mentioned before, when the historicity of a myth is no longer necessary, the myth becomes much more true, ironically. The hero with a thousand faces does a much better job at discussing that than I ever will. So I'll leave it to the book to explain it, if you want. But we must ask, what can we each learn from the story of Adam and Eve while examining it through the lens of mythology? While interpreting myth as history, we see some challenging questions proposed to us, like 1. If God needed Adam and Eve to have agency and be mortals, why create them in the Garden of Eden at all? Why not just make them mortal and make them agentive? That's what happened in Genesis 1, right? Why was God's plan dependent on the devil, his arch-nemesis? Sure, it worked out for him, but there were plenty of other ways to do it. And third, why did the God of truth need to lie in order for his plan to work out? We've just finished talking about this idea above, and I think we can see improvement here. All of these can be answered once we liberate ourselves from the need for historicity. Once established as myth, we need only tweak God's role and lines in the story to express the concept of informed consent. What would informed consent look like in the story of the Garden of Eden? If God had wanted Adam and Eve's informed consent, he would have instead said, If you eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, let's note the fruit is no longer forbidden, the following will be consequences. 1. You will become mortal. You will eventually experience death. Here we see physical death presented but you will also be able to have families and fulfill my command to multiply and replenish the earth. This will fill your life with joy and meaning. 2. You will come to know good and evil, and will inevitably make mistakes, which will distance you from me. Both agency and spiritual death are presented. But 3. With great effort and learning, you will have the opportunity to return to me through the gift of Jesus Christ. Here, the atonement and gospel of Jesus Christ are presented. If God had told them the above, Adam and Eve would have been capable of giving informed consent to the idea of fallible mortality. There wouldn't have even been a need for the devil to manipulate them with just the truth. Even up to this point, the entire story would have been healthier for everyone involved. But there's more. The serpent, while the devil may not play a role, the serpent does play a role in this story. Given the information Adam and Eve would have learned from God, they would have seen a snake shed its skin. They would have seen the molting process as their first example of both death and life beyond it. Once God had given the mental framework to comprehend the process, and they had seen it play out in the life of a serpent, they might have had the knowledge necessary to partake of the fruit. Once they had partaken of the fruit, they wouldn't have been ashamed of their actions, or afraid of God. Rather, they would have known the correct actions to take 
following their informed decision. God would then help prepare them for the tragedies ever present in the fallen world, giving them garments and the law of sacrifice, which we will discuss next episode. Now, I do recognize that the idea of informed consent in this context is functionally impossible, given that comprehension is frequently dependent on previous experience. A child can't comprehend getting burnt until he's put his hand on a hot stove, for example. Nobody could comprehend death without having seen any living creature in its grasp. But at least prior instruction and the microscopic example of the serpent would have given Adam and Eve the mental framework ready to be informed with future experiences. At least they may have had on hand some of the necessary tools to navigate such an upheaval to their previous lives. Considering this, we return to the question. With the right framework, could the story of Adam and Eve teach us about informed consent? I believe that with a few minor changes and the right perspective, we could see a version of God that desires informed consent, and that alone would inform many profound changes in our day-to-day -day lives. It may even improve the church. Now let's look deeper into the story and put ourselves in the protagonist's shoes. Similar to Adam and Eve, we all face the question of when and how to grow up, like, do we dare try something new? Or would we prefer our comfortable lives in the Garden of Eden? Do we dare face the world as it is? Or would we prefer to hide behind the illusions we've built for ourselves? In talking to my dad about these ideas, he told me that he believes that to lose an illusion is better than to gain a truth. At least we know where he lies in this debate, but what about you? All of us, myself included, have to ask ourselves whether we dare seek the truth and what we're willing to risk for it. Whilst talking to my fiancé about Adam and Eve, she referred me to the movie Blue Lagoon. I watched it with her, and I was led to wonder what kind of chaos and fear I might feel if forced to mature with no guide. I realized that sometimes it may be better to hide behind illusions of truth rather than doubt deep foundations of our worldview especially when faced with urgent problems like surviving. I also learned the importance of physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual safe spaces to enable deep dives into our worldviews. Here, the Adam and Eve parallel story asks us if we are ready for more truth or if we need to find a safer environment. Now we're going to talk about the serpent. Remember the differences between creation accounts that we mentioned last episode? Here we have a different understanding of the same story between Jews and Christians. We even have a different understanding today from the understanding Jesus would have had in his day. You see, the idea of Lucifer, or Satan, and his role as God of evil was unnecessary to the Jews. The belief in a God of evil was a necessary result of the proposition that God is the God of all good or that only good things come from God, which was a Christian belief that evolved through the centuries. Before Heavenly Father was considered a perfectly benevolent and powerful God, the idea of evil and misfortune were easily explained. 
Once the idea of an omnipotent deity of perfect goodness was proposed, the idea of evil became more challenging. And thus a powerful but subordinate god of evil was created, and given the name of Satan. In this way, God and Satan can even play the good cop bad cop roles in our lives, thus inspiring faith and confidence in the one due to the fear and distrust in the other. Someday I'll dive more deeply into this idea, but for now we have a more pressing question to resolve. If the serpent wasn't Satan, what role did he play? One can easily come to question the entire story upon the justified removal of Satan, but I have come to find greater personal meaning from the story without Satan than I ever did before. The deep, ancient symbolism of the serpent in the context of the story of wisdom is much more powerful than the simple tantrum-throwing devil we see in the temple and in Moses 1.19. In order to understand the concept a bit better, let's talk about the serpent's symbolism throughout cultures and history. Given its persistent threat and pervasiveness across almost every biome, its symbolism runs as deep as our own history and has symbolized many things throughout its ages. The idea of an evil serpent is actually newer than we might have expected. In fact, it would appear that our ancestors admired them, along with other predators they encountered, just like lions, bears, wolves, and pumas. Across many cultures, including Hebrew culture, the symbol of the serpent was often associated with death and resurrection, wisdom, immortality, and fertility. Interestingly, all of those seem to play key roles in the story of wisdom presented in Adam and Eve, and their fall. Every single one of these topics came forth as a result of the fall. Most of the symbolism associated with the serpent comes from its process of growth and preservation, called molting. A snake molts primarily because, unlike ours, serpent skin doesn't grow with the rest of its organism, due to which the snake will grow a new layer of skin underneath the old and, when ready, remove its outer, more restrictive layer. The shedding of old skin represented the death of the former serpent, and the new serpent, found freeing itself from its old skin, was understood as resurrection. Through the continuous process of death and rebirth, the serpent obtains greater wisdom, leaving behind restrictive beliefs and adopting more correct worldviews. Interestingly, the same tool the serpent uses to protect itself inevitably becomes a prison from which it must eventually escape, but only when ready. This process shows serious parallels to the story of Adam and Eve. The innocence and ignorance that had previously been useful and safe for Adam and Eve eventually became a prison from which they were able to escape only by sacrificing the place they'd once held dear. Our ancestors believed that the serpent's molting process ran parallel to the death of the former self we all experience as we grow and mature. If we're not embarrassed by who we were 10 years ago, we've probably just wasted the past 10 years. That's how we all learn, and that's what Adam and Eve experienced in the fall. The Egyptians actually depicted a similar motif with their symbol of the Ouroboros, in which a snake ate his own tail, representing the eternal nature of birth, 
death, and rebirth. Due to this, many cultures even believed that serpents were literally immortal, possessing primordial knowledge from the beginning of time. Within this context, it seems poetic to say that the serpent who symbolized fertility, representing reproduction, God's commandment to multiply and replenish the earth, and the serpent who shed skin as a symbol of death, representing physical and spiritual death, and three, was reborn, representing resurrection and possibly fertility, and the serpent who four, even represented wisdom, representing the knowledge of good and evil and its associated agency, was the one who gave Adam and Eve the opportunity to experience it all the way God desired. It's almost like Adam and Eve were following the example of the serpent in this story. Remember the last episode? I asked why Adam and Eve had to die as they partook of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. I think we're finally ready to talk about it now. Beyond simply the symbolism, as Adam and Eve followed the serpent's example, their innocence died, their worldview, a key part of them died, and a new version of their former selves was reborn, knowing good from evil. Much more than simply physical or spiritual death, the worldview and very sense of self figuratively died as they shed the skin of innocence to assume the role of moral and agentive beings. As they continued in mortality, they strove to act properly, failed, and learned. The previous versions of Adam and Eve continue the cycles of death and rebirth, or they continue molting their previous potentially erroneous beliefs and growing into new knowledge and wisdom. Every day, they are better armed and prepared to face the tragic world we all live in. Just like the serpent they admired, Adam and Eve shed the confining skin of the Garden of Eden and continued the continuous process of birth, limitations, death, and renewal. Once again, as we see the path to wisdom through the serpent's eyes, we ask ourselves, do I need more time to repair, or am I ready to go beyond? Now, looking at the story of the Garden of Eden, we see that it was an important first step. But even God hoped that Adam and Eve would move beyond its limiting structure despite his commandments desired to keep them there. Does that better inform us as to his motive behind the statement in Abraham 3.25, where he basically states that mortality is meant to see whether we obey? We know that in the Garden of Eden he needed Adam and Eve to disobey. Note that in Abraham 3.25, God never specifies whether obedience or disobedience is preferred. And, as we previously mentioned, we know of at least one circumstance in which disobedience was necessary. I know it seems like a logical leap, but what if the church is simply a preparatory state, a garden of Eden of sorts, from which we are expected to graduate? Given that Adam and Eve were prohibited from partaking of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and were threatened with death, it seems like a beautiful parallel given that members are threatened with spiritual death upon apostasy or graduation. What if, like in the story of Adam and Eve, graduation beyond Kolob is necessary for our progression? Of course the prophets would deny that, 
But what did God say in the Garden of Eden? Maybe those who no longer participate in the church have graduated from their dependence on it. The questions proposed by the story of Adam and Eve are so central to the human experience that their meme, or their central theme, their central core DNA, has been replicated throughout mythologies and allegories across the world and across all of time. For example, Odin, a Norse god, ventured on a quest to obtain wisdom. Socrates, a philosophical martyr in Greece, described the challenge of gaining new wisdom and sharing gained wisdom in a story called The Allegory of the Cave. Even The Matrix, one of the most popular videos in recent history, deals with the same basic human struggle between wisdom and security. Let's look at each of these stories and see what other insights we might glean from them. From the myth of Odin, compared to the story of Adam and Eve, which seems to propose dark repercussions for the pursuit of wisdom, the Vikings seem to admire those who paid the price to earn it. Even today, Norwegian cultures are some of the most prosperous and intelligent in the world. Could their mythologies and perspectives about intelligence and wisdom affect the way they see progress? Let's look at Odin's pursuit of wisdom. Have you seen any of the Thor movies? Yeah, the Marvel ones. From them, have you ever wondered why Odin is missing an eye? It's actually an homage to North mythology. Odin, in search of greater knowledge and wisdom, found his way to the fountain, or well, not sure which, of Erd, the source of wisdom, and tried to drink from it. Mimir, the giant watching the fountain of wisdom, demanded that Odin pay tribute with an eye. Odin accepted the deal, and plucked out his eye in order to drink from the fountain of wisdom. With this story, the need for sacrifice is established, but only as a necessary tribute for a valuable end result. The demand for Odin's eye seems to poetically express that with wisdom one gains the power to see beyond what our natural eye can see. This brings us to ask ourselves the following. What am I willing to lose for the sake of greater light and knowledge? Would I be willing to lose my family, my job, my testimony? Now let's talk about Socrates. The allegory of the cave is frequently called Plato's cave, which may be true, but Plato seems to credit his mentor Socrates in Republic, a book which Plato wrote. He uses the story to discuss the effect knowledge and wisdom have on our nature and worldview. The story, albeit a bit contrived, goes as follows. Let's say there's a group of prisoners, collected from birth, chained down, and forced to see only a blank wall ahead. They watch shadows from puppets and marionettes passing in front of a fire behind them. The shadows are the prisoners' reality, and they are named and discussed as if real but there is so much more to life that these prisoners simply don't comprehend. One prisoner frees himself, escapes the cave in which he was imprisoned, and sees the real world. Excited, the escaped prisoner returns to liberate his friends. But the world of which he speaks is so far beyond their experience and comprehension that they have no choice but to reject it. Eventually, the escaped prisoner frees them from their bondage. But the other prisoners, angry at their disrupted game, kill him and return to their shackles. Quite interesting, isn't it? 
to me it seems especially interesting considering that Socrates, the one credited with the allegory, was later executed for his worldview. You'd think he'd learn from his own story, right? <laughs> Sorry, that's dark. But this story has deep parallels to the story of Adam and Eve. Both protagonists, Eve and the escaped prisoner, are bound within a limited worldview, and both protagonists manage to escape from their bonds. From there, the author's opinions diverge. Unlike Eve, who managed to help Adam, Socrates believed that the escaped prisoner's return for his friends would spell the doom of the escaped prisoner. The prisoner's friends had found a system in which they could flourish, and were too afraid to leave their comfort zone. They were too afraid to go beyond. After we go beyond our previous limits, molting our previous illusions, we can't bring our friends or family with us. Rather, we must wait with love and patience to see our loved ones grow on their own time. They may eventually be prepared to partake of the fruit and shed their own illusions, or they may not be. As much as it may hurt for us to acknowledge, if there is ever a choice between our beliefs and relationships, the relationships will lose out every time. Imagine how the story would have turned out if Eve had forced Adam to partake of the fruit. Adam was already mad at Eve because he got in trouble with God because of her, right? Why, though, are our beliefs more important than our relationships? I think Socrates described it well when he explained that our beliefs are what give light and meaning to everything, including our relationships. Without our beliefs, not only do our relationships lose all meaning and form, but also our very own perception of self. The death of our beliefs is just as intimidating to us psychologically as our literal death, because the conscious self cannot distinguish between them. Now we know why people knowingly continue to cling to deeply damaging beliefs for so long. In addition to the perceived death of self, however, as we lose the belief structure upon which our most important relationships are built, our relationships lose their foundation. Given the death of self and the loss of meaning in every other relationship, it's very easy and obvious to understand how we and anyone else in the same position would gladly sacrifice one relationship to uphold a belief, even if false. To wrap up the allegory proposed by Socrates, the question moves from first-person singular to first-person plural. Rather than ask if I am ready to go, Socrates suggests I look beyond myself and ask, are we content with our current lives, or do we all need to shed some beliefs? But that's enough of ancient history. Let's talk about the Matrix. The story of Adam and Eve is so deeply ingrained in the collective conscience that even current movies and stories continue struggling with the same meme. We've already mentioned the Blue Lagoon, but The Matrix makes even more direct contact with the idea of knowledge, awareness, and wisdom. Just like Adam and Eve, Neo had the opportunity to learn the truth by taking the red pill, or to return to ignorance by taking the blue pill. Just like Adam and Eve, Neo chooses to explore beyond his current beliefs, and in so doing, wakes from a dreamlike life, and incurs great risk to himself and his loved ones. 
Just like Adam and Eve, Neo gains great power he couldn't have comprehended without his awakening. Beyond the simple story of Adam and Eve, Neo initially regrets his decision. But as he considers the options he had, he realizes he would rather not return to ignorance. Cypher, however, serves as a fallen hero, the warped reflection of Neo. The story of the Matrix provides an extra dimension to the story of Adam and Eve, with a possible return to ignorance, and, after the challenges of life beyond the Matrix, Cypher changes his mind and even betrays his friends to return to ignorance. Ignorance is bliss, right? Cypher seems to think so. We do too, on occasion. What would we give to return to life as children? What would we give to return to ignorance and naivety? Who would we betray to obtain that? Would we betray strangers? Would we betray friends? Would we betray family? Betrayal aside, how much would we pay to return to the blissful slumber of ignorance? The Bible speaks harshly of those who return to the plow or those who look back, like Lot's wife. But how do you feel about it? Do we dare face the challenges that wisdom and awareness present us? In summary, the symphony of all of these stories, sharing the same kernel, the same fundamental conflict, highlights the key importance and dangers of searching for greater knowledge and wisdom. Each one of these powerful stories paints a clearer perspective of the unique and fundamental role wisdom plays in our lives. It even helped in the creation, as we learned last episode. But wisdom drives a hard bargain. Interestingly, as we view all of the stories and their opinions together, we gain a collective narrative between the fundamental themes of each individual perspective. The Vikings posit, through Odin's story, the wisdom requires sacrifice, but that sacrifice is a small price to pay for the vision granted through its eye. As we consider the myth, we can reasonably ask ourselves, what am I willing to sacrifice to obtain greater wisdom? The Jews posit that wisdom is a continuous process of death and rebirth, and requires a delicate balance between restrictive beliefs and room for growth. As we consider the myth, we can reasonably ask ourselves, am I still comfortable where I am, or am I ready to shed some limiting beliefs? After daring to go beyond our zone of comfort, we will naturally want to invite friends and family, but Socrates warns us of those consequences. If forced to choose between one's belief and one's relationship, the relationship will always lose. We must give our loved ones space to grow on their own and at their own rate. If, by some miracle, we have the opportunity to help them break free of the beliefs they've determined to be limiting, we have the duty to help them and warn them of potential consequences. This allegory informs our actions as we ask our loved ones, are you ready to shed some limiting beliefs? Or do you want to remain in your current state? At this phase, once we've molted, grown, and potentially grown distant from the ones we held dear, it's easy to ask ourselves, do we really want to go back 
would we really feel comfortable with the same old, restrictive skin? Just like the many times a serpent will molt its skin throughout its life, each of us, every day, are faced with the same question. Am I ready to lose another illusion? Or do I need more time to prepare? This continuing cycle of belief, admitted ignorance, and birth of new belief is our continued day-to-day -day experience. May we all work together, contribute our piece of the kingdom of heaven, and watch in wonder as we all hide to Kolob and beyond together. Thanks again for listening to this first episode of my podcast. I hope you've gotten as much out of it as I have, and I hope you're as excited about the next episode as I am. If so, please rate my podcast positively so that we can all hide to Kolob and beyond together. Much of this content is better worked through together. So please reach out to me with critiques and share this with your friends and family so that we can all be uplifted. And once again... Hi to Kolob and beyond.